page 207, chapter 10, gifts from the source. Doing nothing. The great way is not difficult. It just avoids picking and choosing. Jianji Singshang. There was a soldier who practiced Zen. When he meditated, the stillness was so profound that the house itself grew silent. The mice and even the crickets were quiet. When his wife mentioned this to him, he said, <laughs> well, this won't do. I'll, I'll have to try harder. So he gathered his attention and his meditation deepened. The mice began to play happily around him, even jumping on his clothes as he sat, serene and joyful. That's a wonderful story, isn't it? <laughs> we often forget the value <laughs> of allowing the night and day to flow in and out of the house while on the hill hillside the grass grows by itself. In general, we are not lazy enough and struggle too hard. Anyone can achieve things, but really to do nothing requires resolve. To become one with sitting is to become one with walking, with working, with jumping about, with being sad, with falling in love. The world goes its way, spring, summer, autumn, winter, and we are at home. What our integrity leads us to do then is what the old Chinese teachers called the things of Buddha, eating, drinking, laughing, feeding the children, weeping, Bearing the dead. The man whose aorta split open at sea said that when he was recovering after his surgery, he noticed something. The habit body, the opinions and thoughts that I normally carry around, was quiet. Usually, they make a kind of veil or a buffer over things, but they were silent and that was very nice. When we, later, when, we let, when we let drop the veils of our usual preconceptions, we are closer to our lives, sustained without knowing why. <clears throat> when we cannot see how healing or the next step in our lives will appear, and no longer know what we can expect, the step we must take just emerges out of nothingness, like the grass. What rises to meet our need comes from a domain deeper than a realm of custom, more ancient, beneath our feet and our awareness, thousand arm beyond our control. To live without veils and modesty and unknowing is to trust to the abyss as a swimmer trusts to the ocean and gently moves both hands and feet. It is to flow through the days like boys on a raft down the Mississippi. The old Chinese teachers call such activity doing nothing or not doing. This doing nothing is an inner event that can take place in strenuous action or utter stillness. To do nothing is always harder than we imagine. Do 
You think sitting is doing nothing? Oh, uh, I would. I mean, in a sense, it is. <clears throat> you mean meditating? Well, maybe. I mean, some say that Zazen is not meditation. <laughs> Let them try. <laughs> not doing, in which we lounge around and loaf at our, at our ease, is a kind of falling out of our lives. The way <laughs> when his aorta split the man... fell open and beyond his habits. Visible and invisible hands reach out and we find that we have always been supported by much that is unknown and beyond our plans. Just as Alice in the surprising uncontrollable moment of dropping down the rabbit hole found a marmalade jar on a shelf, we meet common things in a field of wonder. The orderly progress of breakfast, lunch, and dinner catches us and there is the beauty of <laughs> work, tea, jam on toast, the body's cabinet of pains, the quick feet of rain scratching toward us over dry leaves. I like this last phrase. That's very nice. The, the, the quick, quick feet, yes, over, of rain scratching toward us us over dry leaves. Wow. Unlike ordinary laziness, in which we merely avoid something, we think we ought to be doing, the laziness is not doing, has a refined and charged quality. By comparison, ordinary <clears throat> laziness is hard work and requires distraction. When we truly do nothing, a fertile widening silence appears. Close to the mystery, we drift along. There is no resistance to delusion, yet delusion can find no ground to cling to. In the midst of action, we rely on the stillness that is everywhere present. If the world is imagining itself without our assistance, why then we let it do so? When we truly do nothing, we allow that falling can be good, that arms might catch us when we do fall, that the world may sustain and surprise us at the same time. We respond naturally, witnessing the web of life of which we are a part, just as water runs downhill and the white clouds run before the breeze. Uh, his lovely phrases at the end of the paragraphs. <laughs> and you can see why the mice um, livened up when he really sat well, because he mm -hmm. gave them the freedom, the mm -hmm. space to do that. Mm -hmm. After a certain point, knowing and effort don't bring us into closer harmony with eternity. Our love for fragile creatures provides a root. Francis of Assisi spoke with the birds. 
the Japanese poet Isa was concerned for the little forms of life. Don't worry, spider. I keep house casually. <laughs> Not doing, having no urgent plans, we dawdle in the intimate while, like a child jumping puddles on the way home from school. The world comes to us then, and we belong in it, in the morning light at the equinox, with the hawk swinging on the updrafts over the headlands, and in the afternoon with the fog rising out of the ocean to fling itself, cracking light onto the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge. At last, we are at home in this fleeting life. <coughs> the Bodhisattva's thousand arms. <clears throat> Though you find clear waters ranging to the vast blue skies of autumn, how can that compare with the hazy moon on a spring night? Some people want it pure white, but sweep as you will. You cannot empty the mind. He's in joking. To live in the flow of doing nothing is to connect spirit and soul without surrendering too much to the demands of either. The Buddhist concept of bodhisattva offers an image of spirit and soul com coming together, of clarity and love conjoined in an integrity of being. The bodhisattva does not transcend the world, but remains within its turmoil to work for the enlightenment of all. Early in the journey, we often hold an ideal of the inner life that contains a great deal <coughs> of performance, certainty, and purity. Now, with the integration of the soul, we have grown most interested in the illumination of compassion and in a modest participation in the fate of other living <coughs> creatures. The great ideal includes a well, as well a joy in our helplessness, in the nakedness that gives so sharp a quality to being human. One popular Asian image of the Bodhisattva is a fat, jolly old man with a sack, the natural human and the spiritual being. In appearance, he is curiously near to Falstaff, our Western assemblage of appetites whose sack is his belly and who would eat and drink up the world if he could. The Asian figure also has a connection to the animal life, but unlike Falstaff, is serene and unattached to its delights. The sack is a cornucopia and all the world is in it. In particular, there are sweets for the children who surround the old man, like bees around a trellised rose. The presence of the children tells us that our effort is not devoted to scorning the world but to tending it. Jesus, too, asked the children to come to him. The Bodhisattva's intimacy with life means that his speech is composed of many voices. There are many people in the sack. We have to be ample enough to include a wide possibility of being 
and still hold on, I mean, still hold to a central core. During the Second World War, before he was a venerable Zen teacher, Robert Aitken was in a prison camp in Japan. There he met a translator, R.H. Blythe, and asked him, how do you save all beings? Blythe replied, you save all beings by including them. That's nice. That's uh, nice too. The most miserable refugee, the prisoner in chains, no human being is beyond the interest of the bodhisattva or beyond the possibility of developing into a bodhisattva. Even non-human beings, snakes, wallabies, and Tasmanian devils can be bodhisattvas, touching us to the core and opening our hearts. There are always bodhisattvas among us, helping visibly and invisibly. They teach us, console us, serve the sick, the poor, and the lost. Now the essence of the Bodhisattva's story is this. She has postponed her own ultimate enlightenment. Liberation would mean leaving this world with its anguish, never again to be bound upon the wheel of birth and death. And in her compassion, she has taken a vow to remain in our company, guiding us to safety until the last of us is free. She hears our cries and weeps with us. And while any creatures are left to suffer, she will not go on. She wants to enlighten the least of beings, even the hills and the grass. With us, she enters the place of the small, the personal, the realm of soul. He can't let go of the soul, <laughs> the poor man. The Bodhisattva's legend includes the, time, the timelessness of the inner work, the sense that when we meditate, we connect with eons of past human effort, the slow struggle out of darkness. There's a sense that the, that the journey has taken thousands of lifetimes and that we have developed with nearly infinite slowness up from the level of single cell creatures afloat in the primeval soup up from the mollusk level, up from the first swimming vertebrae, we stand upon so many ancestors. We have had so many mentors and our mentors have, have had mentors and so into the distant past, many lives. <coughs> As we develop and rise, we see the value of all these conditions of being. We do not use our consciousness as an escapist way to separate ourselves from those who work and suffer, to think of ourselves as superior to the animals and the rivers. If we entered completely 
the ideal realm, the upward escalation of awareness would take us beyond our world <coughs> and our tenderness for its struggling beings. But the Bodhisattva refuses the temptation to identify with pure spirit, to be free of the pains of life, of choice, of earning our food by our sweat, of giving birth through travail, of the tremor of the unfulfilled desire and of the disillusionments of satisfaction. The Bodhisattva recognizes the dark side of spirit. If we are buoyed up into eternity, we lose concern with our own humanity and cannot help others. So for reasons of the soul, the Bodhisattva chooses uncertainty and imperfection, bending toward us and our suffering. A paradoxical and fully human creature, she is only whole if she is also incomplete. We might assume that the more purely we entered spirit, the more we would be able to help others. But this figure shows us that the opposite is true. We are linked to life through what is partial. This is an improvement over our usual ideas of holiness, in which the saint is seen as impervious and untouched by the world or, as, or else as luxuriating in a kind of orgy of renunciation like Saint Sebastian, chock full of arrows. <clears throat> One Zen myth tells of a disciple who, to prove his sincerity, cut off his arm <clears throat> and stood waiting in the snow. This heroic gesture, though it, it too creates an incompleteness, is typical of the stripping down of the spirit. The priests who flog themselves, the villagers who have themselves nailed to a cross every Easter. But the Bodhisattva, who does not split soul from spirit, is not ascetic or harsh. Her thousand arms bring the sun up in the morning and carry us to our rest at night. Bodhisattvas can be of service because they have a gap, an opening through which we meet them. Through their weakness, they are bound to the world we move in every day. With its dreams and broken hopes, its blood, sorrow, and generosity. They show us that our transformations too arise out of the place where things are not whole or satisfactory, the place where we suffer. So, so uh, I'm interested in what Trouty has to say about this, but, but uh, there's two versions of bodhisattvas. One is um, kind of a classical version where they're kind of almost like gods or goddesses. And then there's the bodhisattva more in Zen that seems to be, you know, what we all are in one way or another, or we all try to be. And I think that's the Bodhisattva he's talking about. The traditional Bodhisattva 
is is kind of like an angel or a a, a god. Uh, I saw a lecture at UT about bodhisattvas, and I, it just blew me away because <coughs> because these were the famous bodhisattvas, and and they were they were so different from how we use the word. Does this make sense to you, Trouty? Yeah, but I wonder whether. Well, yeah, I, I, I think I, I know what you're saying about the distinction. It, the, like the Bodhisattva, like Avalokiteshvara. Um, they See, I don't think that that's the Bodhisattva he's talking about. He's talking about, the, to me, the Bodhisattva in all of us. Right. But you, you um, sort of had two categories, right? One that they were like gods. And I just wonder whether that came um, somehow nailed that way with the translations from the texts. And then people's people bringing to those translations, maybe these ideas that bodhisattvas are like gods, but I don't so, But there's that. another thing too, and that is that the, <laughs> the human realm is, is a more preferable realm to be in than the heavenly realm, right? And the reason is that in the human realm, because it is troublesome, you have a chance to uh, be, become enlightened. Have you heard that, Trouty? Mm, no, I did not hear that distinction. Oh, okay. No, anyway. no, this is uh, uh, this is well taken, especially this last thing what you said. Yeah, because once uh, the bodies the bodhisattvas are sort of put on a pedestal or on the clouds or in, in heaven and stuff like that. But who was it who put them that way? Because who, what was the last thing you said? I didn't get it. Who 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 was it who put them in such a way that they look like gods? And we do that to teachers, don't we? Yeah. We but elevate who, them and then they're unable to function and unable to live to that expectation. So I really love his view, and maybe he would say, I mean all bodhisattvas. Well, yeah, I mean that that's that's what they do. <laughs> but it, uh, this is what I was thinking. I do not know uh, for sure, but that, that's that was my response at the moment. That it, the, in the early translations, uh, the translators were Westerners, and uh, they may have put a little churn on what they were translating. They weren't necessarily practitioners themselves. Although what I found out that uh, academics who teach uh, Buddhism, the variety of it, um, they are usually practitioners, but some of them are really messy. Messy? Well, yeah. In their practice, you mean? Or in just, their thinking? Just in general. Um, oh. 
So they bring their their own qualities and and it used to be I don't know whether it's really changed now, but it used to be that people if if they were teaching something that they were practicing, that was not to be allowed to uh, make public because there was the fear that um, there will be some indoctrination hmm. of the subjects who come to study. You know, many, many artists are really hesitant to, to show their work, to, in the old days at least, to show their work to their students in a similar way because they didn't want to indoctrinate the student to work like them. Mm -hmm. And I remember one student uh, made some photographs like our photo teacher and he just blew up at them, you know, for doing so. Yeah, copying them, yeah. We can notice yeah. that the true, who's reading now? I think it's on you, Kim. Okay. <laughs> I've noticed whenever I ask it to me, we can <laughs> notice the truth of the Bodhisattva's way in our daily lives. When we suffer, we can grow sweet. A business executive who is in turmoil, well, maybe this is part of the clue, is that it, um, it awakens compassion when you you know, are, as he's saying, suffer, suffering. A, a business executive who is in turmoil in her personal life noticed a paradox that people seem to connect more easily to her now and ask more readily for her to help them. At a time when I was in greater internal confusion than ever before, people are turning to me for help. <laughs> I used to be rather dry, but I cannot manage that anymore. <laughs> I feel for the people who work for me, and they can tell. On the other hand, I feel a loneliness, which I didn't notice before. I have more empathy, and I'm also more aware of my own pain, and I know that I have come to terms with it myself. No, I was reading, um, I'm trying to find something that D.H. Lawrence wrote that I read a long time ago. And in reading that, <laughs> I came upon a distinction he made between mind consciousness and blood consciousness. And mm -hmm. blood consciousness is, uh, and I'm not sure to what extent he, he was referring to, to the heart, but certainly to the body and not to the mind and not to discursive thinking. Hmm. I, I like that word. It's, it's a very strong word, isn't it? Blood consciousness as opposed to heart con consciousness. Yeah, because it may, the heart consciousness may sound like a, um, I can't think of the word now. A little too soft? Yeah. But blood consciousness, uh, can be also something rough because normally we don't see it, right? Tim, did you, uh, or in Charlie, did y'all hear what uh, William Shatner just put out the other day about his space 
when he went up in space uh, not too long ago? No, I didn't see that. Who was he, So he basically, William Shatner, the actor. Oh, I see. Yeah. No. He's, so he went out, of, he went into space for like 11 minutes. And he said what was supposed to be a celebration, instead it felt like a, a funeral because of the void of space. It was a, I don't know, it, this, this kind of brings me to that a, a little bit. Did he, he didn't like the idea of a void? Well, uh, I don't, I think it was more like, uh, <clears throat> It was different from you know what his expectations were. Uh, let me see. I could well. I, whenever you stop sharing the screen, I'll put it in the chat. Can you uh, share it? Let me see. I, I'm trying to look for it too. That would be interesting to see. Um, Yeah, here I found it. Let me let's look at it. Okay. My trip to space filled me with overwhelming sadness. In the Exclusive excerpt for William Shackner's new book, Boldly Go, Reflections on a Life of Awe and Wonder. The Star Trek actor mm -hmm. <laughs> reflects on his world voyage into space on Jeff uh, Bezos' uh, Blue Origin space shuttle. The 90-year-old Shackner became the oldest living person to travel into space, but as a actor and author details below, he was surprised by his own reaction. Let's see what. I'm trying to see where he talks about. Oh, it might be towards the end. I saw a cold, dark, black emptiness. Yeah. <clears throat> so sh shall we read it out loud? Sure. Who is reading? I saw a cold, I saw a cold dark, black okay, emptiness. Mm -hmm. It was unlike any blackness you can see or feel on earth. It was deep, enveloping, all-encompassing. I turned back toward the light of home. I could see the curvature of the earth, the beige of the desert, the white of the clouds, and the blue of the sky. It was life, nurturing, sustaining life, Mother Earth, Gaia, and I was leaving her. Everything I had thought was wrong. Everything I had expected to see was wrong. I had thought that going into space would be the ultimate catharsis of that connection I had been looking for between all living things. 
that being up there would be the next beautiful step to understanding the harmony of the universe. Hold on, this, he goes, it was among the strongest feelings of grief I have ever encountered. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm nurturing of earth below filled me with overwhelming sadness. Every day we are confronted with the knowledge of further destruction of earth at our hands, the extinction of animal species, of flora and fauna, things that took 5 billion years to evolve and suddenly we would never see them again because of the interference of mankind. It filled me with dread. My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. Wow. I learned later that I was not alone in this feeling. It is called the overview effect, and it's not uncommon among astronauts. Essentially, when someone travels to space and views Earth from orbit, a sense of the planet's <coughs> fragility takes hold in an ineffable, instinctive manner. Author Frank Weitz first coined the term in 1987. There are no borders or boundaries on our planet, except those that we created in our minds or through human behaviors. All the ideas and concepts that divide us when we are on the surface begin to fade <coughs> from orbit and the moon. The result is a shift in worldview and in identity. Wow. It can change the way we look at the planet, but also other things like countries, ethnicities, religions. It can prompt an instant reevaluation of our shared harmony and a shift in focus to all the wonderful things we have in common instead of <laughs> what makes us different. It reinforced tenfold my own view on the power of our beautiful, mysterious, collective human entanglement. And eventually, it returned a feeling of hope to my heart. In this insignificance we share, we have one gift that other species perhaps do not. We are aware not only of our insignificance, <coughs> but the grandeur around us that makes us insignificant. This allows us perhaps a chance to rededicate ourselves to our planet, to each other, to life and love all around us, if we seize the chance. Wow. That's Thank very nice. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Jody. Oh, you're welcome. I, 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 I was about to say, sorry for taking it off subject, but it, it just, no. I don't know, it was kind of a profound uh, excerpt. Uh, but really, uh, it's really a new way of looking at things, uh, you know, in terms of the Bodhisattva. And this really connects, too, to someone not looking at things in the traditional way, though he says it goes back, and other astronauts saw this, too. But like when the first man, you know, saw Earth from the moon, that was mm -hmm. such a spectacular thing and so beautiful and on and on. Um, but he's seen something that may be a little more realistic. I, I need to go back to screen share. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. 
Did we read this paragraph? Every step mm. into awareness means letting go of an old way of being. I don't think so. And the unavoidable grief of that change is loneliness. With its special talent for mourning and delight, the soul enters us through cuts in the healthy flesh. When we are in pain, it is amazing <laughs> how much tenderness we are capable of and how much joy we can take in the happiness of others. Even our anguish is one of the engines that preserves the world and this and makes possible our human joy. Only angels and monsters are among strong and trans are always strong and transparent of conscience. An old Chinese saying asks, why is it that the perfectly accomplished bodhisattvas are attached to the red thread? <laughs> the red thread is the road of passion, of sorrow, love, sex, adoration, grief, intimacy, uncertainty. uncertainty. If we love deeply, we make an indivisible bargain with one we love. Bargain that goes like this. Either I will be at your deathbed or you will be at mine. Love's companion is parting. We know that love ends in loss, but also that loss is itself full of richness. The irreducible touch of skin, the voice of the owl, invisible in the high eucalyptus tree, past midnight, when the moon has set and everything else is still. There are paintings of hell realms in which the Bodhisattva appears in the fire with horns and a rare face. From, from one point of view, she is in her hell to save even the demons. From another point of view, even hell is beautiful to the one whose heart is at rest. If we are incomplete, there's no room to learn. Hmm. That's a great sentence. It is. Uh, though our wounds, through our wounds, the light pours in and the task of, of <coughs> consciousness is to mirror it back so that gradually over millennia, human awareness increases. Each of us does a small part of this grand work, mapping the course of the internal road in our time. At this stage of our journey, integrity is a willingness to rest in the incomplete, the partial, the emerging, the unformed. Loving whatever is incomplete, soul and spirit, like other opposites, tend to express their own separate natures. At first in our journey, for the sake of clarity, we have to recognize and even encourage this division. At that time, we are like psyche sorting the seeds. As we go on though, there is something suspect about such opposition. For as well as a 
fish, fissile. How do you pronounce this? Anybody? <laughs> oh, a fissile? Is it a fissile? Fissile. I actually do not know what it is. Fissile uh, pressure. So well, it, it's a. I. It's fissile. It's fissile. I think it's it's a a crack. I see. I don't know something coming like a, out of something like a else. Fissure. It's it's fissile. It's uh an atom of an of an atom or element able to undergo nuclear fission. Oh. Wow. Thank okay. you. You're welcome. For as well as a fissile pressure, soul and spirit have a natural companionship, a predilection for conversation, a shared delight in the unfolding moment. After traveling their long separate paths, soul and spirit draw toward each other again because each has what the other lacks. They seem now to want to mingle, and when they do, the experience is deeply ecstatic, illuminating each other. They are beautiful but difficult lovers. Secretly, spirit wants embodiment, wants to sink down and be mortal, to bleed to struggle with high blood pressure and menstrual uh, cramps and cold toes. Without these pains, spirit is ghost-like, vague, adrift, without links to the earth. And the soul, which knows more than it needs to about the fragility of the body, secretly loves weightlessness. The voice of the soprano rising like the lark vertically above the tussocks at the dawn, at dawn, we need both realms. We are at once vast and tiny, intensely personal and at peace. Honoring what is incomplete, we must love our lives in their details. Mm -hmm. The puzzling marriage and the child who likes to read, the smell of melting asphalt in the summer, the wistful pleasure in the autumn mist that gives its nobility to the procession of gar car <coughs> soul and spirit hold their conversation within these moments and their conjunction is the embodiment of enlightenment by holding soul and spirit together we rescue love for the spiritual world <laughs> and allow earth to be enlivened by heaven, the ingredient of soul in the compound permits the outpouring of compassion. Heaven, in turn, is given weight and zest and the terrifying beauty of morality. When the two interpenetrate, then there is a harmonious state of affairs. <coughs> the child plays, the summer afternoon goes on. In the itching, it is not a good condition when heaven is above earth. Each realm recedes from the other into its own pure nature, and less and less becomes possible. The spirit 
uh, flies up and the soul plunges. Then we have to wait and worry out the time until it changes. This is the hexagram of standstill in which there is no intermingling. On the other hand, when earth is above heaven, we find the situation of peace. The heavy earth sinks and heaven rises through, through it. They enter, penetrate, and inform each other. Nothing is perfect or pure, but all things are right. A woman had her bathroom remodeled by a Japanese-trained carpenter. It was slow, precise work, requiring bent wood and odd angles. And each detail was perfect, it seemed. But when he had finished, he took her into the room and asked her to bend down and look into a dark corner. He had left a flaw in the skirting board, a slight and deliberate error. This is, this is an ancient idea. It stops the gods from being envious and acknowledges that in our human realm, imperfection allows life to flow in, making a path for happiness and human uses. In such a gap, uncertainty becomes a surprise, a wonder. We are ready to fall into it, as if into its happiness. I mean, into happiness itself. I like this. Yeah, I do too. Bye bye. bye. Thank you. What is Thursday? Our Zen writing. Oh, I see. Cody goes. Yes. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye.